Did I ever tell you the story about the time that I managed to get a front row seat at a Michael W. Smith concert? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> I was in about seventh or eighth grade at the time, and uh, my youth group um, was going to uh, go to a concert that he was putting on at his home church in Kentucky. At the time, I, was, I only lived about an hour away, and so uh, he came back to his home church to do this, and inv- they invited the local uh, youth groups in the area to come out and, and be there for that. It was a, it was a neat uh, event, and we underestimated how many people would actually come to that, and we got there way too late and ended up um, being ushered into the, the, the balcony, basically, of this church. It was a uh, sort of a, a rectangular, traditional rectangular-shaped uh, worship space, but it had an upper level that you had to access through stairs out in the, in the lobby. And so we were ushered up to the top and we had sort of the nosebleed view and we're sitting there waiting for the concert to begin. And I, I looked down and noticed that there was a large open space right in the front by the keyboard. I mean, it, it's like as if this space right here was, was, was open and every other place there were people. And I thought to myself, well, I mean, no one's sitting there. So why don't I sit there? So I convinced my little group of friends and we made our way down and about a minute before the concert began, we came right up and and sat right in front of the piano. Well, as you can imagine, um, we weren't supposed to do that. And an usher promptly came over to inform us, you you can't sit here. This This space is reserved for handicapped people, people that can't make it to the front on their own, people who need a wheelchair or or special attention of some kind. This space is reserved for them. But the problem was, as he was informing us of this devastating news, um, who but Michael W. Smith himself came out to begin the concert. And when all the people who had seen what was going on realized what was happening, well, they all rushed and filled in the rest of the available space. And so there we were, front row seats at a Michael W. Smith concert. And to this day, I have equal parts pride and disgrace for what I did. (laughs) Well, this morning, um, we're going to be looking at a story about another person who broke the rules to get a front row seat. So if you would, turn with me to Luke chapter 5. We'll be reading verses 17 through 26. If you grabbed a guest Bible, we're on page 826 this morning. Um, We will be reading from the NLT uh, so if you don't have an NLT, a New Living Translation, you're welcome to have one of those Bibles back there for yourself this morning or to keep for yourself uh, forever if you would like. That's our gift to you. Luke chapter 5, beginning of verse 17. One day while Jesus was teaching, some Pharisees and teachers of religious law were sitting nearby. It seemed that these men showed up from every village in all Galilee and Judea as well as from Jerusalem. And the Lord's healing power was strongly with Jesus. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a sleeping mat. They tried to take him inside to Jesus, but they couldn't reach him because of the crowd. So they went up to the roof and took off some tiles. Then they lowered the sick man on his mat down into the crowd right in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the man, Young man, your sins are forgiven. But the Pharisees and teachers of religious law said to themselves, Who does he think he is? That's blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew what they were thinking, so he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or stand up and walk? So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And immediately, as everyone watched, the man jumped up, picked up his mat, and went home, praising God. Everyone was gripped with great wonder and awe, and they praised God, exclaiming, We have seen amazing things today. Now, if we were reading through Luke from the the beginning, we come to chapter 5, and by now... Um, Jesus has begun to generate quite the following. The sequence, of course, in in Luke's gospel, after, you know, the birth of Jesus and Jesus, you know, grows into a man, he's baptized, he goes out into the wilderness, and then, of course, he returns home and he's rejected at his home. But from that point, 
there in chapter 4 into the middle here of chapter 5, we see the sequence take an upswing. We have uh, an exorcism followed by healing. Jesus is he's seen teaching. He's calling his first disciples. And the result of all this sort of momentum as we see it building in this gospel is crowds are starting to form. And Luke notes that among the crowds, of course, can be found these Pharisees and teachers of religious law. They're everywhere he goes. And they're coming from every city that, that is in the area, even all the way down from Jerusalem. There in verse 17, we see that uh, Luke makes note of that. But there are many others that are coming too. It's not just the Pharisees. It's not just the teachers of religious law, the ones who are there to sort of keep an eye on things, make sure Jesus doesn't you know, rock the boat too much, to, to sort of investigate for themselves what's really going on with him. It's not just guys like that, but others. Many others, in fact. And that's because Jesus wasn't ministering to the elite of society. He wasn't there for the people who, at least in their minds, had it all together and didn't have much need for a guy like him. But no, Jesus was there for those who, whether by their own fault or whether because it was through no fault of their own, people who had been pushed out to the margins of society. You know, the the so-called deplorables of society. The you know, the outcasts, the, the rejects, the, even the losers. Jesus would welcome even them, as we began to notice last week. We talked about the true welcome of Jesus, who, who's, it's extended to the people that are unwelcome. And Jesus would welcome them and reach out to them and even touch the untouchable, transcending every social boundary and norm. And let me tell you, someone like that is always going to generate a following. Someone who genuinely cares about other people. Someone who takes the time and, and invests the, the attention and the energy into, into others. Someone who genuinely listens. Someone who genuinely empathizes. Someone who genuinely cares. But even for Jesus, that kind of openness to people, that kind of welcome for that type of people does not come without taking its toll. In fact, one verse prior to our text here, back in verse 16, you, you would have seen it if we'd, gone, uh, if we'd started just one verse prior. It says that Jesus often withdrew to the wilderness for prayer. Now, why do you think he did that? Why does, why does Jesus make it such a, a focal point of his life to take these breaks to go off and be alone? Well, I mean, the theological answer is, well, it's, it's because of his intimacy with the Father. And you'd be right. I mean, uh, having a, a quiet time was, was a necessity and an emphasis even for Jesus. Now, what does that say for us? If Jesus needed a quiet time, how much more do we? Uh, but I think it was not just that. Yes, he, he sought intimacy with his Father, and, and rightly so, but I think he was just flat exhausted. Uh, someone asked me this morning, um, if the denomination we're a part of has made any sort of official statement about the chosen. And of course, to my knowledge, there has been no statement for or against that I'm aware of. And, and many of you have really come to enjoy that, that show. And my family as well, we've, we've watched and we've um, appreciated the, the, the production quality, the, you know, the pretty faithful to the scriptures. Uh, they take some, you know, license here and there, but I mean, that's when you're producing a, a TV show, I guess that's, uh, that comes with the territory. Um, but there's one episode in particular where uh, the, the, and I hope this isn't a giveaway for any of you. Um, if, if, you know, this is a spoiler, spoiler alert, if you want to close your ears from now, I, you're welcome to, but it's not like it hasn't been out for a while. So um, that's on you and it's not on me at this point, but there is an episode, I believe in the second season, and I could be wrong about that, but uh, the whole episode is the disciples you know, sitting around complaining and griping and arguing about things. And the whole time you're like, man, this is getting old. Like, is this what we sound like? And I think the answer is probably yes. We all sit around and we find everything under the sun to complain about. But it all's building to the end of the episode where Jesus finally makes his appearance in the show. He has been out ministering all day long. And he comes back and all the disciples have been grumbling and moaning and complaining and accusing and and then here comes Jesus is dead silent as he walks back just covered in sweat and blood and dirt and grime and he's so exhausted he just collapses in his tent and it's just this shocking moment because it's 
It just shows us what the toll that ministry took on Jesus. And so he had, he had to get away. He, yes, he's fully God. He, he, he has the, the divine nature. He's co-equal with the Father and the Spirit. But he's fully man. He's not superhuman. He's human. And he needed a break. And that's because people, especially certain people, can suck the life out of you. <laughs> so before long, here Jesus is gathering crowds and he's packing out whatever venue he finds himself in and it leads us to this dramatic account here in chapter five. And there he is in verse 19, teaching in a packed house when a great hole is opened up in the roof of the building they're in. Can you, could you imagine that, by the way? I wonder if you kids, you younger kids here who aren't normally with us on uh, this time of Sunday morning, could you imagine if this morning, even as you're listening to me talk up here, if suddenly we heard this, this noise right above us in the middle of the ceiling here, and suddenly sparks began raining down on, on the floor, and people are, are dodging to get out of the way so they're not hit by the, the shrapnel and the bits and the pieces of material that are falling down from the ceiling. And then once this hole is opened up, that a human being is lowered down by a rope right into the middle of the worship center. Could you imagine that? It'd be pretty dramatic, wouldn't it? I mean, as I was picturing this, I was thinking maybe one day, maybe on my last Sunday here, <laughs> whenever that is, whether it's next week or 30 years from now, whatever the Lord decides, when my time is done, maybe on that last Sunday, that's how I make my entrance into the church. I don't know. <laughs> I like to imagine it at least. But what, what would you do? What would we do? Maybe it's a little more dramatic because we, we're in a structure like this. I know the structure Jesus was in, the ceiling was, you know, much more rudimentary than what we have here. There's no you know, uh, power tools required. There's not going to be a, a, a shower of, of sparks and shrapnel and things falling down. It's more like, you know, maybe some straw or some mud, um, maybe bits and pieces of wood. But nevertheless, pretty shocking moment. How would you react? How would you feel if you were there and this was going on in front of you? Well, in this story, it doesn't take a lot of imagination to to sense not only the shock among the people in attendance, but perhaps a degree of frustration? Do you think anyone was irritated by what was going on? Well, I mean, the most obvious person is the owner of the house. Right? Really? Like, you're digging a hole in my roof. I, I built this with my bare hands, and here you are tearing it apart. And why? Why are you doing this? And what about the guests, those who who came in the right way, the ones who stood in line the longest, who maybe had been following Jesus longer than anyone else, waiting for their opportunity to get the front row seat. How do you think they may have felt when this guy came interrupting things and perhaps even obstructing their view, getting in their way, restricting their access to Jesus? This man has cut to the front of the line in front of all those, perhaps you could argue, were more deserving to be there. This afternoon, my family and I are taking a, uh, a summer trip to Bush Gardens. And you might be sitting there thinking, why, oh why? <laughs> At least that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> Would you go on a Sunday after church when you are the most tired and most exhausted that you will find yourself in a given uh, span of time? And the truth is, I have no idea why, other than we got some free tickets and this was the only day we could go. So uh, we're going to Bush Gardens and we love to go there. We love, it's something our whole family enjoys doing together when we're able to. And um, I, I love spending time with my family. I love, uh, we have rediscovered, Rebecca and I, in our, our 40s, um, that we're still able to ride roller coasters. And so we want to strike while the iron is hot. Because I know one of these days, uh, it's not going to happen anymore. So we're, we've rediscovered roller coasters, and we enjoy riding those things, and we, we love doing that together as a family. But do you know what I do not love? The quick cue. Does anybody know what I'm talking about when I say the quick cue? 
Now maybe you're thinking, well, I love doing the quick cue, and that's fine. I'm saying, I don't love when other people do the quick cue. Because the quick cue means that they get to go to the front of the line. They get to pay a little bit more than you do so they can get first access to any ride they want. You could stand in line for an hour and any number of quick cue people are just gonna keep going in front of you. It's the worst. Now, in fairness, the lines of Bush Gardens generally aren't that long. Not from my experience. And, in fairness, they did pay for the privilege. So, fair enough. But still, does anyone like other people cutting in front of them? Ever. I, I don't particularly care for it. Kids, do you like it when someone cuts in front of you? Yeah, no, you don't, you little liar. No one likes it. How dare you undermine my point? That's why we only do Family Fifth Sunday three or four times a year. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't hate you, Linda. No, we don't. We don't hate handicapped people. Don't, don't mishear anything I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> And we're happy to let you go first. Don't misunderstand what, what I'm saying here. This is not hating on handicapped people at all. I'm talking about people who are able-bodied that could wait and cut in front of the line. That's what we're talking about. Look, one of the great things about where we live, and maybe that's why a lot of you have migrated. Maybe you're not uh, you know, a, a, a proper born and raised Southerner. I'm not. I'm a, transport, a transplant from the Midwest. So uh, I'm not originally from here, but I'll tell you one of the things I love about here is there's not a lot of people, right? There's not a lot of people. Now look, I love individual persons. I, I, I hate no one person. I, I will do anything for any individual. If someone comes and needs something, we, we do whatever we can to help them and, and support them. Give, take the shirt off our backs and give it to them. But we will love and support anyone individual person. But individual persons aren't the problem. It's people. People are the problem. People are the ones that slow you down. People are the ones that get in the way, aren't they? People are the ones, when you're doing the right thing by getting over in the lane, when the lanes are coming together, you get over when you see the sign. People are the ones that zoom past you and get right down to the last second and cut you off and slow everyone down who's doing it the right way. Those are people. People are the worst. As I tell my kids, don't be people. I tell you that, don't I? They hear that just about every trip to Walmart. Don't be people. Do you think Jesus saw the paralytic and his friends that day as people? I don't see it in the text. People in the sense that I'm using the word here, of course. I don't think Jesus saw them as people, though I reckon everyone else there did. You can hear the attitudes of the hearts of others because it's our attitudes. How dare he cut in line? How dare he put his needs before mine? Do you think the paralytic is the only one that needed healing that day? Is he, is he the only one that needed something that only Jesus could provide? How rude. How rude for him to interrupt. Has he no manners? Does he not understand etiquette? Has he no respect for others? Has he no respect for the teaching of God's word? It's one of the things we're trying to emphasize in our youth ministry these days. We're trying to emphasize just the importance of, of being respectful of, of people that are teaching, right? Because the, the people that teach, the people that preach, the people that, that are in, in positions of leadership, they, it's not just because there's a hierarchy. That's not about a hierarchy thing. It's just people that are in these positions, they, they put effort into it. They, they take time. It's, sermons and lessons and, and things don't just appear unless you're using, you know, like, chat GPT or something to generate a message. We're not doing that here. I promise you. We're not using, um, uh, what is it called? AI. We're, we're not using AI to generate messages. 
um, it takes time to do these things. And so we're trying to instill in our teens, look, it's, it's disrespectful and rude when someone is teaching or preaching and you're just ignoring them or you're, you're having a side conversation or, you know, you're doing some, or you're getting up and, you know, leaving the room or coming back five different times. You know, th- that's not something we do. It's rude and disrespectful to do that. And here we have someone being rude, truly rude and disrespectful to everybody. Not the least of which, Jesus himself. And, and to, to even, you know, amp it up a little bit more, the, the paralytic and his friends didn't just interrupt the word of God being taught, they interrupted the word of God himself teaching. It, it's already offensive, it's already rude, but it's just that much more rude and offensive. And I wonder what I would have said if I were Jesus. <laughs> really? You, you, guys couldn't, you guys couldn't wait an hour. This isn't the time. This isn't the place. I, will, I heal. Just ask all the people out there. I heal. I'm not going anywhere. You've, you've been paralyzed this long. You can wait a little bit longer. Just go outside and wait your turn and clean up this mess and fix this guy's roof. I'm glad Jesus is not like me. How do Christians or even whole churches tend to respond to people? Those with the special needs. And I'm not talking about physical, necessarily physical handicap. Just people that require more time, people that require more attention, people who, who gobble up an unfair amount of attention and resources and who, are, who demand that you give them what they think they need when they need it. How do Christians, how do churches tend to respond to that? Well, it's generally one of two ways. We either despise them for their selfish motivations, or we go to the other end of the the extreme and we make their immediate needs the most important thing that needs to be addressed. And Jesus, interestingly enough, does neither in our passage. He doesn't get mad at the man for interrupting, does he? Do you see any irritation or frustration or anger in the things Jesus says and does in the text? Anything at all? I don't see it. It's not that Jesus is incapable of getting angry. We know good and well that there are moments in the Gospels where Jesus is clearly angry. Some things angered Jesus. Anger in and of itself is not a sin. And so Jesus is capable of anger. I don't see it here. He could have been angry. And I don't know if we would have held a whole lot against him if he had gotten hang- angry <laughs> or hangry. <laughs> you all, you ha- hangry people out there know what I'm talking about there. We don't see that in Jesus, but we could have. After all, the man is interrupted. The teacher sharing God's word. The, God's word, the teaching of his word is to, supposed to occupy the preeminent place in the life of God's people. There's nothing more sacred. There's nothing more important than what is happening here. Yet Jesus neither despises the man nor corrects him. I wonder how many of us, if we're being honest with ourselves, need that example this morning for us. How many of us need to see Jesus' Jesus's response to people? <laughs> you know, to those who push us to our limits, to those who demand more of us than we think we have to give, those who gobble up an unfair share of our attention, of our resources, of our convenience. We get irritated by them, but Jesus doesn't. Jesus didn't despise him, selfish motivations and all. Interesting, isn't it? And I think, I think that's good news for us. Because, frankly, if Jesus despised everyone who ever came to him with selfish motivations, well, he would despise us all, wouldn't he? 
Who of you, who of us, has ever come to Jesus with a completely pure heart? Truth is, every one of us is the prodigal son, aren't we? The ones who come home because, well, we've made a mess of things, and boy, are we hungry. (laughs) Did the prodigal son come home for the honor and glory of his father? No. He came home because he had need. He came home because he was desperate. He came home because he had made a lot of mistakes. He had tried it on his own and realized how how incapable he was of doing things right. We come to God for every motivation but for his own glory. (laughs) And yet, he never turns us away, does he? Notice Jesus didn't respond the other way either. So we've talked about the first way that we tend to handle things or respond to people like this and how Jesus isn't like us, but there's another way, another extreme where people and churches tend to go in response to people. You know, you can, you can see the, the man's friends, can't you? They, they've, they've concocted this plan. They're probably, you know, equal part terrified that they're going to get in trouble, but really pleased with themselves that they've come up with this idea. They've executed it perfectly. I mean, they made it into the Bible. All right? They did it. They did a pretty good job here. They managed to take someone who could not get to Jesus and they dropped him right in the front, in front of the keyboard. <laughs> they probably felt, you know, a little bit of pride and a little bit of disgrace, just like I do thinking about the Michael W. Smith thing. But instead of healing the man, Jesus forgives him. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? I wonder what they thought when that happened as they're looking down through the hole and they're just, just, they saw all the other miracles. They've heard the rumors. They, they know what this guy is capable of. That's why they've gone to such great lengths to put their friend in front of him. And they're, they're, they put him there. The plan has been executed flawlessly. And here's the, the great payoff. Jesus is going to say a word and the guy's going to stand and everyone's going to cheer and they're going to pat themselves on the back for a job well done. Look what we've done. We have pulled off the, the perfect plan. And what does Jesus do? Son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder if there's like, (gasps) I mean, thanks for the spiritual experience, Jesus. But now we got to carry him out of there. We dug a hole in the roof so our friend could walk again. And yet there he lays. But what they failed to discern in that moment, at least we suspect they did, what they failed to see in that moment is that Jesus' response shows what he deems to be the real need. What's the real need from Jesus' perspective? Well, it's not the paralysis. The paralysis to Jesus is not the ultimate thing. What's the ultimate thing to Jesus? Oh, it's eternal separation from God. That's the ultimate thing from the the vantage point of God. And I wonder how many Christians and how many churches in their well-intended efforts to relieve the social problems in society make the secondary things the primary things and far too often the only things. And so they abandon things like truth. They abandon things like holiness. They abandon things like conviction and repentance and matters of the heart in the attempt to fix society. And I promise you that's a thing. There's whole denominations that that's a thing. Where they've taken secondary things or things perhaps even farther down the line and made them first. And Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus won't do that. When we make secondary things primary, 
at the expense of what matters most? Well, we fail to respond as Jesus did to the problems that really exist, the real problems in the world. Yes, the hungry must be fed. Yes, the oppressed must be given justice. But what is the greatest need? What is the most important need? Not that we don't care about the other things. Of course we do. Of course we do. And maybe we don't care enough. It's not a matter of how much as it is, what's the priority? Because at the end of the day, what sense is there in making the world a better place for someone to just go to hell from? Do I need to say that again? What point is there in making the world a better place for someone to go to hell from? Jesus attends to the whole person, but he gets first things first. He doesn't err on either end of the the extreme, either end of the spectrum. You don't find him here, you don't find him here. He neither despises the man for wrong intentions, nor does he make the immediate need the most important thing. And in so doing, Jesus provides a unique witness to who he actually is and to what God is actually like. The Pharisees, of course, to their credit, they were the first to see it. It's there in verse 21. Granted, they, they saw it and responded to it the wrong way, but they're the first to see it there in verse 21. They were outraged at what Jesus was claiming about himself and probably, to a degree, what he was revealing about God. Now, to illustrate this point, I would love to, to invite some of our young ones up here, but it would probably take too long and, you know, they probably would start wrestling or something. So we'll avoid it. But we'll just use some, some younger ones as, a, as an example. So let's say I invited Will and we'll say Isaac and, you know, maybe Caden or Landon or one of these guys. We'll say Landon because I see him over there. Say, hey, guys, come up here. And say they came up here. And as they were up here, um, Will, no, don't come up here. Just, oh, there's two Landons. They're both, they're both wanting to come. No, just one Landon. Let's say Will turns and slugs Isaac right in the face for no reason. Now, son, don't you ever do that or you're going to have to deal with me. We don't hit people. He turns and he slugs Isaac in the face. And as Isaac is just weeping, the the tears of of pain and betrayal, as it's just flooding out of his eyes, Landon turns to Will and says, Will, I forgive you. Now, what do you think Isaac would say in that moment? As, as blood is, you know, running down his face and going in his mouth and getting on his nice green and white shirt. What would he say? What? <laughs> All right. But what would you say to Landon forgiving Will? You would say, he hit me. He didn't hit you. He hit me. I'm the one with the bloody nose. I'm the one that has been hurt. I'm the one who can forgive him, not you. This is not your place to forgive him. It is my place to forgive him because I'm the one that was hurt. And I wonder if there's a little bit of that going on in the Pharisees here. I wonder if that's what's going on. Because as Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, what is he saying about himself? The Pharisees saw it crystal clear. They're saying, wait, 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 wait. Jesus, no. God is the one offended by sin. God is the one that that people sin against. He's the one who gets to forgive sins, not any man. And here Jesus is claiming to forgive as if he is the one offended. They knew exactly what Jesus was claiming about himself in that moment. And they say it in the text. What a blasphemer. How dare this man claim to be able to forgive sins? It is not his place to forgive sins. It is only God's place to forgive sins. He is a blasphemer because he's equating himself with God. He has no right unless he's the one that the sins offend. When in fact, Jesus is making the statement (laughs) that as God, the Son, in the flesh... He himself is indeed 
the one who has been offended by this man's sins and his friend's sins and the sins of the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law and and the other spectators and the guests and the homeowner and the people on the outside who couldn't come in. And guess what, by the way, all of you and I too. Do we forget as we think about the love of Jesus and you know, going to the cross and all the wonderful things we say about him, do we forget that he himself is the one offended? And so it's amazing to me in this moment of, of revelation is that not only does Jesus have the, he's claiming the authority to forgive sins, but oh, look at his eagerness to. His eagerness to forgive sins. And what that says about the heart of God. Find me anywhere in this passage anyone repenting of sin. Where's the repentance here? Where's the, the bold confession of faith? Where's the altar call? Where's the, the sinner's prayer? Where are the, the great acts of restitution that are performed to you know, sort of validify you know, the, 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 the truth and the reality of this profession of faith? Where is it? It's hard for us to process what's happening here because you and I often reduce professions of faith to our rigid scripts and protocols, don't we? We know that someone has professed faith when they have done X, Y, and Z as we've been trained, you know, to, to lead people. X, Y, and Z. Billy Graham did it this way. X, Y, and Z. If Billy Graham did it this way, then this is how people come to Jesus. This is how people express faith. This is how people are saved. I don't see any of X, Y, and Z in this passage. We don't see it. We require people to say certain things. We require people to do certain things. And yet Jesus shows us in this story that the mercy of God responds even to the the quietest whispers of a man's heart. And it shows that maybe God is far more willing to offer forgiveness than we are even willing to ask for it. It's pretty profound. Yes, it's, it's right for us to draw attention to, you know, the wrath of God. His personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. But it is equally, if not more so, right to remember that his wrath is matched by his personal, righteous, constant love for people. The Bible doesn't present this picture of God, you know, scooted up on his throne, right on the edge of his seat, just waiting for the chance to smite somebody. That's not the picture of God. We get, that's not what Jesus shows us here. No, on the contrary, we see, we see God withholding his judgment, don't we? We see God delaying it, even to the point where the church is crying out, all right, like the world is bad. Evil seems to be, you know, on full display. It's on the move. It seems unrestrained. There's untold misery. Everywhere you look, everything is going to you know where in a handbasket. Where are you, God? And we're told he's withholding his judgment. He's withholding his wrath. He's, he's delaying, meeting out his, his righteous judgment upon the world. And so the, the picture is different than what we have in, in mind. It is not God waiting on the edge of his seat, ready to just smite us when we, when we you know, make the slightest mistake. No, the Bible and Jesus in this story presents God on the edge of his seat, waiting for just the slightest dawning of faith. Just the slightest bit. Just the teeniest, teeniest response at the level of the heart that he might unleash the fullness 
of the riches of his kindness and his grace. That he could swarm us with that. That he could, like a flood, like a flood, his grace, his compassion, and his kindness, and his forgiveness could be given so freely to those of us who didn't even know how much we needed it. And maybe just only barely began to want it. Jesus is the very embodiment of this truth of God and his eagerness and his willingness and his desire to be merciful and to be forgiving and to love. And here's the part that scandalizes me. As Jesus is revealing, yes, his authority, but as he's also sort of manifesting the very heart of God for us, who got to, who got to see it best? Who got to see it best? Well, it was the very ones offended by this whole event the most. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? The ones we spent the first sort of half of the sermon identifying with and even being critical of. Well, they were given a front row seat to it all. The ones who are grumbling and mumbling and the... <laughs> if I see sparks coming down, we're all going to run. <laughs> In that episode of The Chosen, who got the front row access to see Jesus in his, his humanity. Well, it was the very ones who were complaining, wasn't it? This isn't Jesus' endorsement to, of complaining. It's not saying, church, go be the most complainy people you can be, and then you will see the best things about Jesus. That's not the point. The point is kind of like the point last week. Remember last week, Yes, Jesus is extending grace to this woman. He's welcoming her. But he's not just extending grace and welcome to her, is he? It's to, it's to everyone else. They got to see the heart of God on display in a way no one else did. And the same thing's going on here. The ones who are put out the most are the ones who saw it all best. And so with Jesus, what the world sees as a rude inconvenience actually becomes a prime opportunity to catch a glimpse into the heart of God. Oh, I hope that resonates with your hearts as a church, a church that is called to make space for the, those that inconvenience you the most. Because the promise is, when we do that, we will get a front row seat to the glory of God. Jesus heals and forgives. He offers not just immediate relief. He offers ultimate relief to the, the needs that matter most. And what's the result of that? Well, the hearts of many were turned on to God. Look at verse 26. Everyone. Remember who the villains are. Those, those Pharisees, and Luke, you can hear it in his tone. Those guys showed up everywhere we went. Every city we went to, you could always find those guys sitting there with their little scowls on their face. They're little grumbles beneath their breath. In fact, that's what's happening here. There's grumbles beneath the breath. Same thing like last week. Jesus perceives in the heart. It's in the text. The same words, verse 21. They said these things to themselves. Verse 22, Jesus knew what they were thinking. So they're sitting there with their condescending gaze, their bad attitudes, or you know, probably whispering things to each other. Everywhere they went, they were haunted by those guys. But in verse 26, everyone, 
was gripped with great wonder and awe. And they praised God. Who praised God? The guys, the paralytic and his friends? The, the truly faithful? Who had followed Jesus from the beginning? Who were completely loyal to him? Who were there for all the right reasons? No. When it says they all, it's referring to everyone. Everyone there. Even the most hard-hearted, the most skeptical, the most put off. Because of what they got to see. Oh, they all, it was, it was like revival time. There's hope for people like you and me who can't stand people. If we would just allow a little bit of space in our lives, in our church, just a little bit of space for the, the most exasperating, the most demanding, the most inconvenient people to be brought to Jesus, oh, then we, we would see something wonderful. And our hearts would be turned on to God. We would join them in praising God, exclaiming, we have seen amazing things here today. If we're honest, when it comes to the matter of sin, we're all the lame ones, aren't we? We can all identify with the paralytic here. We're all people who cannot move toward God on our own, and we're not able to move toward God any more than he was able to move toward Jesus without help. And so what does God do? Well, God himself came to us. And that, my friends, is the greater, more remarkable descent in our story than this dramatic picture of a man being lowered down on his mat. God in Christ coming down to us. He has descended right into the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our need. Even when we didn't realize it, or perhaps when we do, Jesus is God in the flesh, come right into the middle of our misery. And he didn't come to just offer doctrinal truths. No, he came to demonstrate and to embody the kingdom. Where mercy triumphs over judgment, where the broken are restored, where the humble are exalted and the proud are brought low, where the real and ultimate and eternal needs are not only placed in the proper position, but where in him they are met perfectly. The kingdom has come in Christ. And just like the characters in this story, Jesus hears the whispers of your heart. For good or for ill, he perceives your attitude. He perceives your mentality. He perceives what's at the very heart of who you are and your response to all things and what your needs truly are. And he wants to come right into that. And he wants to meet, meet you where you are. He wants to restore you. He wants to cleanse you. He wants to heal you. He wants even to forgive you. And he can do it because he's the one you've offended. And he has the authority to do it. And oh, is he eager to do it. I want you to see his heart in this passage, to see it revealed, his eagerness to forgive and to save. Will you allow him to descend into your need today, into your brokenness? into your bad attitude, <laughs> into your hurt. He wants to come there if you'll let him. I want you to imagine, as we close here, Pastor Jeff and the team can begin making their way. I want you to imagine, we've done a lot of imagining this morning. I want you to do it one more time. Imagine this space here as a place where you can be like the characters in the story. Maybe you are that friend who wants to, to lower someone into the presence of Jesus 
through prayer. And you, you are invited today to come and, and bear them before God, their needs before God. I know it's metaphorical, but it's no less real. If anything, it's more real. To, to present the people in your life who need Jesus to Jesus in prayer. Imagine this is just that. Or perhaps you are the one that needs to be lowered. <laughs> and you want to, this is me offering to you, this is me lowering you to Jesus. Or maybe you're, you just don't know what's going on and you just hope somehow in all the midst of this, Jesus would be willing to come into the midst of your stuff that can happen right here. And I hope that it does. I hope you'll come. I hope you'll feel free to come as the worship team leads us in this closing song of response. Bring someone to Jesus. Bring yourself to Jesus. Let Jesus come right down into the midst of your brokenness and need. Let us pray. Thank you, Lord, for the ways that the gospel reveals the truth of who you are. And that's why we believe that the Bible is true. We believe it's true from cover to cover, every word. We believe that it and it alone accurately attests to the truth that you are. If we want to know you, if we want to know about you, if we want to learn from you, we go to your word, which points us to yourself. I thank you that we've had the opportunity to do that this morning. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you've been doing that, that you've been connecting the dots in our hearts, that you've been pointing out where these truths relate to our lives. And, and you're showing us even now how to respond. Lord, help Help and enable each person here to respond as you're leading them to. That we would not leave here with regret or with unfinished business. That we would not feel like we were turned away, but we would hear your welcome, your invitation to come and be forgiven. Come and be restored. Come and be set free. Come and receive the real love and the real life of God. It's your invitation. It's not the pastor's. Is the invitation of God to the people of God. And we say in our hearts, deeply, thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Jeff.